Hey guys, welcome to episode 21 of the True Crime Couple Podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. And today our episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, Casper Mattresses, and the Zola Wedding Registries. Before we get into the episode, we want to thank everyone for the outpouring of comments and ratings over these last few weeks. It's great to hear what you guys think and what you have to say about last week's case, and all the information that you guys had was just incredible. And we really, really appreciate that. Also, we want to give a shout out to all of our new Patreon subscribers. We appreciate all of the new donations that we got over the last few weeks. And of course, we're going to have our list of all our donators at the end of this show. You guys are really awesome. Yeah, you guys are getting us to our goal. And that is tremendous. I know we get excited every time. Like, so we get so excited when it pops up. (laughs) Literally, two kids on Christmas morning. It doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) So thank you guys for that. Uh, yeah, and at the end of the show, we're going to personally thank you all again. And if you're interested in donating to the Patreon page, you can visit patreon.com slash couple. Really anything you could give would help us out tremendously in trying to bring you a better quality podcast. And actually, if you donate right now, you'll get a bonus episode right away about the Winchester Mystery House. Be sure to listen to that episode before you go out and watch the new movie that either just, it's coming out soon, right? The Winchester movie? I believe it's coming out. Yeah, it should be out soon. A few days. Um, It's great about Sarah Winchester, her obsession with the supernatural and building up her super haunted house. So it's a really fun episode and I really enjoyed doing it. So if you donate to Patreon, you get that episode right away. Okay, so that's all the business, so let's get into our case this week. The case we are covering today takes us all the way back to 1962 in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, on the night of January 21st. There's a fire blazing at the house of the Maps family at 510 Sarah Street. In the wreckage of the fire, two people were found. First was 22-year-old Christine. She was bludgeoned, bruised, and unconscious and rushed immediately to the hospital. Next was the body of Christine's four-month-old baby daughter, Julia Louise. She was covered in blankets and was deceased before emergency responders could reach her in her crib, her cause of death being smoke inhalation. However, there was someone missing from the scene, Christine's husband and the father of Julia Louise. The eccentric Edward Maps was nowhere to be found. In fact, Edward Maps would never be seen again. Because he was the prime suspect in the murders of his family, he landed himself a spot next to the most notorious criminals in the United States on the FBI's most wanted list from 1962 to 1967. But is it possible that Edward was not responsible for the fire that night and the tragedy that would follow? Was he a victim himself? Tonight we're going to go over the details of the MAPS case and the mystery still surrounding it. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Edward Howard Maps was born on June 22, 1922, to a prominent, wealthy surgeon and a stay-at-home mom in Passaic, New Jersey. Little is known about Maps' childhood in New Jersey. What we do know is that Maps was a Marine during World War II, seeing active duty at the age of 23, spending nine months in the Pacific, 
one month specifically at Iwo Jima. Although military and medical records of maps are sporadic, we can assume that he was present for Operation Detachment, better known as the Battle of Iwo Jima. The American amphibious invasion of the island of Iwo Jima began in February of 1945 and ended in mid-March of the same year, exactly when MAPS began his active duty. The battle is infamous in world history. As a part of the American island hopping strategy to take down Imperial Japan, the country set its sights on Iwo Jima. They needed an airbase near Japan, and the Japanese already had three airbases set up on the island. This would be a double victory. Not only would America take away vital Japanese airbases, making it their own, the airbases of Iwo Jima had become a problem for the American B-29 bombers, who were performing raids on the island of Japan as early as October of 1944. The taking of the island would allow the B-29 bombers to continue putting pressure on the mainland of Japan. So getting this island was extremely important for the American war strategy in ending the war in the Pacific theater as it had already ended in the European theater. Now, if America was to reach Japan, it was clear that Iwo Jima would have to be theirs. However, in order to do so, they would have to take down the 23,000 soldiers that were hidden among the elaborate network of caves, dugouts, tunnels, and underground installations. That's why after heavy air and naval bombardments, three U.S. Marine divisions totaling 70,000 men were sent to clear the island. The 36-day battle that followed saw the fiercest and most savage fighting seen in the Pacific theater of World War II, and quite possibly the whole war. 7,000 Marines died and 20,000 were injured, taking the tiny island located 750 miles southwest of Tokyo, the majority of them not making it past the grainy black volcanic sand. 27 Medals of Honor were awarded to those who served at Iwo Jima the most given for any battle in United States history. The Marines that fought in the Pacific, particularly those who saw action at Iwo Jima, described the horrors of those I- described the horrors those islands had in store for them. The heat, the animals, the enemies, the fear of being captured by the Japanese seemed more terrifying than being killed in battle. The men said that their time in the Pacific continued to haunt them throughout their lives. And the reason why we went into so much detail about this and mentioned it is because if Edward Maps was part of or even a witness to the atrocities that took place at Iwo Jima or even their aftermath, it could provide a lot of answers for us. And not in, not in any way are we saying that the only atrocities that took place were against the American soldiers. There's definitely a lot of cases of American soldiers not being so great either, but it kind of, in the Pacific Theater, towards the end, people were getting frustrated, wanting the war to be over, so it did get extremely aggressive on both sides, and that could lead to a lot of post-traumatic stress taking place, either because of what someone witnessed, what someone did to someone else, or what someone did, or what someone did to that person. I would have to agree. You know, it definitely damages the psyche. I mean, that has a real bad effect on people's minds. I mean, when they come back. Right. It's kind of hard to go back to working in the factory after you killed someone. But in November of 1945, two months after VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day, Maps was discharged from the service and treated at a naval hospital 
for severe emotional illness. Of course, we know now about the long-lasting physical and mental challenges soldiers face when returning from any form of combat or even active duty. But in 1945, these things had not yet been conceptualized. Now, I'm not saying in any way that I believe the United States does all that it could to assist our soldiers returning home today, by a long shot. But at least now we are aware of what post-traumatic stress syndrome is. We know it's really real and really serious. However, the term post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't even coined until 1980. And as you can see, it's still evolving today because there's a big push to move it from post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic stress syndrome, so it doesn't have that negative connotation anymore. Right. I mean, think about it. These people used to call it shell, being shell-shocked, right? Right. At one point. I mean, that was what it was. That was what the term well, was Well, that's probably for. the best way that they can describe it. Right, right. So it's definitely evolved from being shell-shocked to trying to get it as a syndrome. So, Well, what you're going to hear... So the reason why I bring this up is because I wanted to prepare you for the ridiculousness that the medical professionals at the VA hospital are going to come up with in regards to MAPS mental illness after 1945. So after a psychological evaluation, he was described as retarded in VA diagnostic medical records. It also stated that he suffered from hallucinations, which led to the doctor's diagnosis of schizophrenia. Is, are you serious? They call yeah. them the... <laughs> yes. Those are the medical terms that they came up with from someone who is suffering from PTSD. Although we don't know a lot about MAPS prior to his service, any report cards that are found were all very high, high remarks from his teachers. So he was an intelligent person. There was no question of his IQ or um, his social interactions. So it seems like any mental illness that he had post-war is really just from what happened to him during the war. I agree. So, I mean, we know today now is post-traumatic stress syndrome that he was suffering from, but that is the diagnosis that was given to him. And especially the schizophrenia diagnosis is something that's going to come up continuously during the investigation of the crimes that we mentioned before. So obviously, now we know that these hallucinations were most likely flashbacks, which is a symptom of PTSS. But unfortunately, this diagnosis befell many men before him in World War I, during World War II, Korea, Vietnam. No one really knows what PTSD is until we get into the 1980s. And our country's inability to treat the brave soldiers who fought for our freedoms as Americans will sometimes lead to a cycle of self-medication and addiction for our veterans which unfortunately is something that we still see going on today because of our soldiers not being treated the way they're supposed to be treated when they come back, when I talk about mental health issues. Although we've come a long way in understanding how fragile soldiers' mental health is, we still really do have a far way to go. But Edward Maps was definitely one of those casualties, one of those prior mistakes. And it seemed as if when placed out of the VA hospital, Maps knew he could never be a normal functioning member of society again. He, like many other veterans of the time, involved themselves in the beatnik movement. This group of disenchanted youths, disenchanted youths, (laughs) (laughs) returning from war became anti-conformist following the writing of Jack Kerouac, the father of the beatnik movement. 
And in many ways, I believe that Maps' life, it's going to be hard to say the whole podcast, Maps' life mimicked Kerouac's life. And I don't know if this was done intentionally, but I thought it was something that was really interesting. Because if anyone knows anything about the beatnik movement, they know about Jack Kerouac. And Kerouac enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserves and attended Columbia University in New York City. He became a writer and an artist famous for traveling the United States and eventually married the younger sister of his childhood best friend, who died in Anzio, Italy during World War II, saying that with her, he had a piece of home with him. That's really cute. That is cute. Actually. Uh, Maps becomes a sculptor, and when he left the VA hospital, he actually became really successful, and he taught classes in many universities in New York City, and that's where he's going to meet Christine Wolbach, who was, at the time, 21, and may have possibly, just like Kerouac, reminded him of better times in his life. When Maps was 21, he had no idea what the Pacific even looked like. And now, as a returned veteran, think about the the long-lasting impact that had on his life. So, I don't know, it could be a stretch, but I just thought the parallels as I was reading about the two men just really were so similar. Yeah, maybe, I mean, I think maybe Maps found comfort in the way that Kerouac continued his life, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I I think that also Maps idolized Kerouac and everything that he stood for. So it shows really that Maps embraced this whole beatnik culture and tried in every way possible to be what what we would call now as a nonconformist and that eventually that will all work against him. So after Edward Maps is going to meet and fall in love with Christine Walbach, he's going to decide to move back to her hometown with her in hopes that the two would get married. Christine's hometown was Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And it is in this small town in 1960 that Maps' eccentricities are going to be on full display, and many people won't be happy about that. It's a little different to be a beatnik in New York City and then to be one in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. It's completely different. Right. (laughs) Um, Plus, the people of the town aren't too comfortable with the relationship going on between the two. For starters, Maps is 17 years older than Christine. And that's something her father definitely doesn't approve of. Rumors also quickly make their way around town about what Maps was up to before coming to Stroudsburg. Because he was a sculptor living in New York City, he didn't make too much money. Therefore, he lived with friends, and he moved very frequently. After his welcome was completely worn out, they usually kicked him out of their apartment. And the people that he stayed with were mostly older women which led people to believe that he was sleeping with these women for money. And this is something that's going to come up a little bit later. Despite never having a place to call his own, Maps never got a conventional job, something that is quite odd for a blue-collar, hard-working small town in 1960. Some other oddities that never quite allowed Maps to be fully accepted in Stroudsburg was his beatneck attire. He always wore tight, tight black pants, and black shirts, a variety of different hats and sunglasses, and no matter what time of year it was, he was wearing sandals. Did he do the socks too? Only in the winter. <laughs> it's awful. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing worse than socks and sandals. I hate it. 
Yeah, it's I bad. hate it. I mean, if that's what you like, that's fine. But I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, wasn't socially acceptable in the sixties. It's not anymore. <laughs> it's just such an eyesore. It's bad. It's bad. I get. I get why people didn't like the socks and sandals thing. Ah, uh, yeah. It's I mean, terrible. I'll, I'll do the hat. I'll do the sunglasses. Just not the socks. Not and sandals. the socks and sandals. It seems, however, though, that Maps led two different lives. The one in New York City and the one in Pennsylvania. Those who knew him from his time living in New York City before he met Christine paint a picture of a lazy, insolent, nasty moocher who jumps from person to person. Once he feels he's gotten all that he can out of someone, whether it was financially, influentially, or emotionally, he moved on to the next. It seemed that everyone he knew, it seemed that everyone who knew him in New York City didn't have one nice thing to say about him. Maps just was this completely different person in New York City. Because when he moves to Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, all of those interviews with those neighbors paint a completely different tale of him. It seemed like he was he was changing who he was based on the group of people he was around, if that makes sense. Oh no, it makes sense. There's people in this world, some that I that there's people like this that I know where they take pride in the fact that they're like this social chameleon who can kind of blend into any environment. So I see that. And it's not I mean it's not odd. I mean in there's, a way it's a good trait, I guess. It definitely is. I mean if you're using it for good and not, you know, well, being I think a it's, uh, bloodsucker. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's interesting though that like one's unfavorable and one is so favorable. <laughs> because the tales from Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania depict a completely different man altogether. They say he's a gentle, kind, and intelligent man whom they would trust around all of their children. Maps was described as the man who would skate in the streets with the children, adore and show off his baby, and joke around with all of his neighbors. They also explained that Maps had plenty of hobbies. If he was not sculpting or painting, he was collecting arrowheads, fossils, and other Native American artifacts down by the Delaware River. The neighbors also told heartwarming personal stories about the man. One person recalled that Maps was always joking with the community about how little they knew about the world, which annoyed some and amused others. I think that would annoy me. Oh, it would annoy me too. I'd be a little pissed. (laughs) As a joke, he once exhibited a painting at an art show in town with a red blob in the center of the canvas. When asked what it meant, he explained to all those who were around that the dot represented all that Strasbourg knew about art. Ouch, that's a burn right there. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Just picture him there with his socks and sandals. Like pointing Hate. at it. Yeah. <laughs> like hating on everybody that's from Strasbourg. <laughs> Another story showed the serious and caring side of the man. A month before the fire, police were told that Maps helped care for a critically ill man during the day so that his wife could go to work and they wouldn't lose their house. Maps was reportedly there every day and was a great comfort to the man until the day that he died. They also noted that Maps often liked to drink beer, but never appeared to be drunk. So a lot of times you see people who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. I mean, obviously we know that it is more likely that it was PTSD and that they self-medicate. 
So that would lead some people to to assume that maybe Maps did drugs or he was an alcoholic, especially because of the lifestyle that he was kind of clinging to. And it seemed like he did drink beer all the time, but there, no one ever makes claims of him being a drunk. That they know of. That they know of. I mean, he could be a functioning alcoholic. We see it all the time, but he, he doesn't seem to be belligerent is what I'm trying to get at. Right. That doesn't seem to be his thing. So this lazy sponger slash greatest neighbor of all time, we don't know who he really is, um, is going to eventually be charged with arson and two counts of murder within three hours after the fire at 10.48 p.m. Unfortunately, the next morning, Christine is going to succumb to her injuries and pass away. Her official cause of death was a skull fracture and cerebral hemorrhage. So investigators had a lot to figure out. Who was Maps? Where was he? And what was the family dynamic of the Maps? And finally, what were the circumstances surrounding the night of the fires? So we want to take a quick break to tell you about our first sponsor, Zola. Zola is a wedding company that will do anything for love. They're reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make the happiest moment in a couple's life even happier. From engagements to weddings and to decorating your first home, Zola is going to be there, combining compassionate customer service with modern tools and technology, all in the service of love. It's free, easy to use, and really fun. Zola Registry has everything you love about your favorite department stores, plus things like honeymoon funds, fitness classes, wine subscriptions, and so, so much more. We really liked it because planning a wedding that we have coming up in 2019. Yeah, it's great. I love it how, you know, you don't need to go to somewhere where you need to have a scanner and scan everything. You don't need to do any of that. You don't have that annoying person following you around, telling you what to pick or what people usually pick. The there's no pressure. It's really just us sitting down on our couch, picking everything that we want for our future house. Another thing was there were things that I liked at one department store, but... And I liked that another. So it was nice that Zola has over 500 top brands and 5,000 gifts, experiences, and cash funds. I would have to say my favorite part was all the experiences that they offer as well. Um, they have vacation getaways and you know trips to different places. So it's not just merchandise that you can have on the registry as well, but also places to build memories. Right. I really like that factor too. And something that makes it really easy for all of our guests for whether it's going to be the bridal shower or the wedding itself is they have that group gifting, group gifting feature, which allows multiple guests to contribute to big ticket gifts. That's something that whenever I go to a bridal shower, I tend to do with people that I either work with or went to college with. We want to put our money together and get something really special for the bride and groom. But it always gets complicated with who you're giving the money to, who's putting it on whose card. And with Zola, they allow you to do that all independently, but together at the same time. Zola also has a full suite of tools that can be managed all from the Zola Weddings app for iPhone and Android. And it's so much more than just a registry. It also can allow the couple to put up photos, tell their story, and they can kind of create their own wedding planning tools, customized checklist, a guest list manager, and create a website. 
that talks about how they came to be where they are as a couple. And it's really just a great experience that allows everything to be at your fingertips on this cool app. We love Zola and we are so excited to just keep building our registry. We tend to go on every day and kind of just like add something. Especially me. It's, it's I become, have a habit. It's becoming a problem. So it would really be wonderful if you are planning a wedding or you know someone who is planning a wedding. Tell them about Zola and all of the wonderful opportunities that it can bring to them. You can also help out us by helping us keep this all this content free by supporting the true crime couple at zola.com so if you are interested in starting your registry you could sign up with zola and receive a 50 dollars credit towards your registry in order to do that you have to go to zola.com that's z-o-l-a.com slash t-c-c So once again, that's Zola.com slash TCC in order to get your $50 credit towards your registry today. So let's get into the family dynamic of the Maps family. Our story begins when Christine Walbach meets Edward Maps, her professor, while attending art school in New York City. After two months of dating, the much older Edward is going to propose to Christine. She happily agrees. Christine's father, Robert Wolbach, however, is going to object until the day of the marriage in August of 1960. The Wolbachs were kind of a big deal in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, a small community outside of East Stroudsburg, known for its university, East Stroudsburg University. Um, They get really creative with their names in Pennsylvania, if you didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Wolbachs owned many properties in town, And they had a reputation that Robert really intended to keep for the family. And it was clear that Edward didn't mix in well with the image the family was trying to portray. When the couple initially got engaged and later married, they lived in one of Walbach's properties at 507 Thomas Street. This was a three-bedroom, three-bath, just about 1,600 square feet single-family home for which they didn't have to pay any rent. I wish we didn't have to pay any rent. That would be amazing. Wouldn't that be awesome? Fortunately, my father doesn't own this apartment complex, so Uh, it doesn't work. Oh, well. My dad would never let us live for free. No, wishful thinking. (laughs) And I have to say, from all of the accounts that are given, I don't think Robert Walbach liked that they were staying there for free either. Um, It's here that Edward and Christine will become pregnant. And the family dynamic is going to change further when in July of 1961, Robert Wolbach has a heart attack, which causes him to have to go on leave from his job with the New York City school systems. And now that the Wolbachs were losing income, it looks like the maps are going to have to move out of the property at 507 Thomas Street so that the Wolbachs can collect rent for the house. I mean, initially they were asked do you want to stay and pay rent? But when Edward and Christine are going to say that they couldn't afford the rent, they have to then move out of the house. Because at this point, Edward doesn't have a job. Yeah. I, I think that, like, he just feels like he doesn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't have to pay rent. I mean, that's just... Exactly. I mean, I don't think he has any fire under his ass to go get a job. <laughs> yeah, I think... Well, he claims that... Well, first of all, he's an artist, so... An artiste. Yes, he does not have to work. He's a sculptor. 
and he says that he can't hold down a regular job because of his mental health illness issues. Right. So that's the excuse. I don't want to say it's the excuse he gives for not having a job, but that's what it, that's the reason why he says he can't work full time. This is something that really annoys Christine's parents because they feel, I take that back, this is something that really annoys Christine's father because he feels that the man, he's very old school. I mean, it's 1960, it's old school period, but he's even, he's from an earlier generation where the man is supposed to support his family. And that's not what Edward seems to be doing here. So because they can't afford to pay rent anywhere, the, this leads the whole family to move in together. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine that clusterfuck. He must be ready to kill people. <laughs> it's it's kind of like it could be a sitcom if yeah. murder didn't take place. <laughs> it could be comical. Um, so you have Christine, who is seven months pregnant, her deadbeat beatnik husband, her recovering and very angry father, and at this point, her poor mother, I feel so bad for her. <laughs> she has to tolerate everybody in this yeah. house. Um, and they're going to move into another property, which the Wallbacks own, just across the street at 521 Thomas Street. This property was larger than the home at 507. It was just about 3,000 square feet, it had four bedrooms and four bathrooms. And it was a gorgeous Victorian house. In fact, the properties that the Wallbacks owned in Stroudsburg are now in what is considered the historic Hill District. They're old, beautiful Victorian homes. They're very spacious. So even though the four of them were living in a house together, I mean, we can say that it's a pretty large house. Yeah, I I think everybody... I think everybody had their room in the house. Like, it's like everyone even like has their own cramped. bathroom. Yeah, that's pretty exactly. awesome. I would. I mean, I don't need my own bathroom, but I'm sure you would like one. I would. I would be nice. Yes. <laughs> now, if Robert did not approve of Edward before, this living situation certainly wasn't going to make things better. Robert claims that Edward did not do anything for his daughter or their unborn child, and that he was concerned for their futures. According to him, Edward just sat around the house 24 hours a day, read the newspaper, never worked, and certainly never paid for anything. To make matters worse, Edward, in the eyes of Robert, had made a point to get his wife and Christine's mother, Julia, on his side. Now, this is something that's interesting and kind of goes back to Edward Maps's past in New York City, where they said that the woman, the women that he would influence and try and get things out of were older women. Right. So this is kind of history repeating itself. Yes. To Julia, Edward was charming and funny, whereas to Robert, he was condescending and constantly challenging his role as man of the house. Edward would actually answer the phone by saying, Hello, Maps residence. (laughs) I kind of like him, though, because he's... He's ballsy and witty. Yeah, he's... <laughs> I just... I like him. I mean, it's it's funny to think about it, but could you imagine how angry Robert Wolbach was? Oh, no, I could... I, I, I would probably kill him myself. I mean... <laughs> this, is a, this is a rich man who is very prominent in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. He also has 
an art supervisor position in the New York City school system. And he's got this kind of bum living with him. Yeah. Who's answering the phone like that. That's crazy. No, it is. I mean, I would be mad. I would be <laughs> mad. I would feel like I'm being taken advantage of, which which they all were by maps. You know, you could just tell right yeah. from here, you know? And, and don't forget, Robert's still recovering from a heart attack. So I think this is putting him under way more stress than his doctors thought he was going to be under by staying home. <laughs> so things are kind of heating up here. We also have to remember that it's 1961, and Edward being disrespectful, not working, acting strangely, was a huge point of contention, not just for Robert, but the town, because it's just simply not how things went, especially not in a blue-collar town. Either way, it was clear that this living situation was not working out. The newlyweds wanted to move out on their own. Maps is going to pull all the heartstrings he can with Julia. He tells her that he wants to give his child the best of what life has to offer by being a present father. He tells her stories of his father never being home and his lonely childhood. I mean, your father was a surgeon. Like, let him It's not like surgeon. he never came home. I. Once again, yeah. he's manipulative. I know. He says that the idyllic family can only be achieved if the couple had a beautiful home to raise their children in. However, it is hard for him to find work because of his mental problems. So all he has is his art. This is what he says to Julia. Which he could rarely sell to the residents of Stroudsburg, who he says don't know much about art. Julia bought this hook, line, and sinker, and is going to discuss buying a home for the couple with her husband, Robert. However, the recent heart attack, paired with the uh, MAPS residence issue is going to break every single one of Robert's heartstrings, and he is completely unmoved by the plea from Edward. Edward was still very aggressive about asking for, if not a home, at least a large loan to get one. Robert told several family members and friends that he was disgusted by the shakedown he was getting from his son-in-law and the pressure that was being put on the couple and that Edward and his daughter should be embarrassed about the way they were behaving. From what I see, though, it's all Edward Maps. It's very, I have poured over so much paperwork for this case. I've never heard Christine Wolbach say anything. Like, there's no reports of her, anything, any of her feelings, any of her knowledge. So she's very quiet about everything. I think that he's like this older man who has this big personality and she kind of, takes a submissive side to him yeah i agree i agree with that i think that like i mean it's it's it definitely is all maps for sure yeah i don't think that christine is at all being involved in pressuring her parents to give a loan for a new house but i'm sure the parents are probably wondering why isn't our daughter doing anything exactly yeah so in september of 1961 christine gives birth to a healthy baby girl who they name julia louise if that, I don't know if that's a manipulative thing that Maps is going to choose to do to name the daughter after his mother-in-law, but it happens. And to separate the two, they always, like, Julia is her mother and Julia Louise, like, they always say it like it's one name for the baby. 
Now, if you thought adding an infant to this vital situation was going to help matters, you were completely wrong. Very, very wrong. In fact, after the birth of Julia Louise, all of the simmering problems are going to come to a head for the Maps Walbach residence. Robert Walbach reported that in October of 1961, when the baby was about a month old, that he and Edward got into an argument about a closed door. During the argument, Robert apparently slapped Edward in the face. Ouch. Yeah. This incident is going to cause mass chaos. Police are called to the scene. A request of a restraining order was filed from both men, and it's ordered that the two men could no longer live under the same roof, as to prevent further domestic disputes. So now the Maps family has to move out of the residence at 521 Thomas Street by November 3rd. And this is something that causes a lot of stress to Julia. And at this point, she asked Robert for a divorce. Wow. Are you kidding me? Yeah. This is going to send Robert through the roof. It's 1962. Divorce is very uncommon, especially in a Catholic family and the very religious town of Stroudsburg. Robert becomes convinced that if Edward and his beatnik way of thinking never entered the lives of the Wolbachs, he and his wife would never have gotten a divorce, which is probably true. Yeah. I mean, you're introducing a whole other element to life. <laughs> yeah, into you know? a small town. And I think that he, I think Maps has Robert's wife wrapped around his finger. I think out of anybody here, I think that's the one person that's been wrapped around his finger from the start. Yeah, I think so too. I think he knows exactly what to say to Julia. Robert makes this very clear during an incident on October 20th, 1961, just after the slapping incident. He is speaking with Julia about the divorce and he flies off the handle. He starts screaming at her, asking her what she has become. He calls her a tramp and a bum And he kicks in the TV in the living room. Like, he puts his foot through the screen. And this is a tube. So that's that you have to kick it pretty hard. Slightly dangerous, too. You can hurt yourself. Uh, Julia reports to police that she feels very afraid of her husband, that he is mentally unstable, and that in the moment, while he is trying to leave, he says to her, get out of my way or I'll kill you. Wow, so now he's threatening her. Some threat. Oof. I mean, I don't know if it's a threat or it's just like an, a thing set out of anger, but it was that. Well, I mean, even if it's out of anger, it's kind of crazy to say somebody. So on November 3rd, it is not just Christine, Edward, and their infant daughter who leave the house on, Thompson, on Thomas Street, but it's also Julia. While the four of them move into a small apartment at 540 Main Street, Robert decides it's best if he takes up his job again with the New York City school system as an art supervisor, and he moves full-time and bitterly back to New York City. A few weeks after the move and the dust settles, it seems Edward Maps gets exactly what he wanted after all. He and Christine have just bought a house at 510 Sarah Street a beautiful white Victorian house with a wraparound porch that sits perfectly atop a grassy hill. The couple purchased this house with the $1,000 that Christine had managed to save and a loan from Julia. (laughs) I find this, like, absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) 
Also, $1,000. They saved the $1,000, and they got a loan for this house. It's, like, so cheap. I wish well, I wish houses were that cheap now. I wish houses were that cheap. Oh, my God, please. I'd have two of them. Um, the average price for a house in 1960 is a brand new house is about $12,000. That's insane. So, yeah, that is insane, I wish. Wouldn't life be so much easier? <laughs> um, when Robert Wallback finds out about this, he goes crazy. And he says to Julia that she is absolutely ridiculous, that she should have never done that. And he tells her that he truly believes that Edward Maps is lying to her, that he's not penniless like he's claiming to be. He's saying he's got money. And I'm going to find out about it. And he makes that promise to Julia that he's going to show her that he's lying. I mean, I think at the same time, here's a man who really does care that his family is being taken advantage of and being taken over by somebody else. He also lost his whole family. Yeah, I mean, he has a right to be pissed. I would be. Yeah. So I just want to paint a picture for you before we begin. All the properties we have mentioned thus far in the podcast are within walking distance from each other. Thomas Street and Sarah Street run adjacent to each other, with Thomas Street being north of Sarah Street. And the road that connects Thomas Street to Sarah Street is Main Street, where Julia now lived. Julia and the Maps' new house on Sarah Street were only a quarter mile away from each other, so basically walking distance. Actually, all of these properties were within walking distance from each other. And the Maps' new house at 510 Sarah Street, their backyard was connected to the backyard at 521 Thomas Street. Which is... Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That's really funny. So isn't that really weird that the properties are connected? Connected, This is going to come up a little bit later in the investigation, um, the proximity of the properties. Did you ever call that your your behind-the-street neighbor? Like, is that what you called it? We'd never called it our behind-the-street neighbor. <laughs> That's no. what I used to call it when I was, like, my whole family <laughs> called it that. You would just say the neighbors behind, like, the neighbors in the back. We said the behind-the-street neighbor. No. <laughs> Isn't that so I, weird, I, 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 I guess? I want to say I just said, our, I think my dad used to just refer to them as, like, neighbors, our neighbors. Yeah. And then when I'd be like, well, which ones? And then he would just say, oh, uh, yeah, behind the you street. know, James and, and, and Janet or whatever. And then we'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess. I guess we it's were, just more complicated. Maybe though. we were just weird, because well, like they're on a completely different street, but they're your neighbor. You're behind the street neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not wrong. I'm just saying. My dad would just say in general, "That's our neighbor." And then if you said, "Well, which one?" You'd say, yeah, "Like I behind said, behind the street." You know, okay, yeah. Don't tell your dad I say that. Oh, I'm telling my dad. <laughs> okay. So, before we move on to the night in question and the events that follow, we have one more weird family incident to discuss. According to Julia Wolbach, around Thanksgiving, Christine and the baby were in the hospital, and Edward was sleeping over at his mother-in-law's apartment. Just as she was saying goodnight to her son-in-law, who was in bed at the time, her ex-husband Robert walks in on the scene. And by the way, she was wearing, according to Robert, a nearly sheer nightgown. And Robert also reports that he believes that Edward Maps was naked in bed. 
All right, so... Um, uh, maybe it's just a beatnik thing, or you sleep naked, I don't know, maybe. I don't think so, I think they were trying to get a quickie. <laughs> really? You think so? <laughs> I think he was tapping it, yeah. Ew. I think so. I mean, he did have a thing for older women. It's true, it's true, but I just don't want to ever believe that, because it makes me a little nauseous. It makes me nauseous too, but I think he was hitting it. Because, you know what, in reality, I mean... I think he's closer in age to the... To, to the, the mother, mother than his own wife, right? I think he is closer in age to the mother than he is to, to his he wife. He was 39. Yeah, he was 39 when he married. Okay, so he's in his 40s so, yeah, at this so point. Yeah, so he's like 41. I think, yeah, he's probably closer, closer in age to the mother. Closer in age to Julia. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Robert is um, going to begin accusing the two of having an affair, saying that he knew it all along. And then he leaves the impo- he leaves the apartment. So first off, this is the weirdest situation of all time. Weird. First of all, it's it's comical that Robert would even show up at that time. Yeah, well, I don't even know why he's there anyway. Maybe something with a divorce or getting something. Maybe he was still getting... I find it weird, though, that he had such easy access into that apartment. I think that, and it's not completely clear, but I found one source that said that he actually owned the apartment. So I'm guessing he had a master key to so the apartment. So maybe, I don't know. I guess he doesn't announce that he's coming in the house. He just kind of goes in and sees her trying to get a quickie, maybe. Yeah. Oh, or he, she was just saying goodnight. I mean, we don't. this could be completely exaggerated. Yeah, maybe she wasn't even wearing a, a, an all-sheer nightgown. It, yeah, it wasn't described as all-sheer. I mean, oh, for okay. all we know is that when we talk about the modesty of the 1960s, she was probably wearing a nightgown, and then the cover-up she had over it was sheer. Yeah, it's not like it's 2018 yeah. she's wearing pasties on her nipples or something. No, I don't think that's what Julia Wolbeck was that's wearing. That's what I'm saying. No, I don't. Um, it could be exaggerated from Robert's perspective, but she is going to deny it. But a second point that I thought was pretty interesting, everyone describes Robert as flying off the handle, being really violent, but here he walks in on a situation where he thinks his his ex-wife of only a few months at this point is is having an affair with his son-in-law and then but he just leaves. Like I think if he really was this crazy violent man they were making him out to be, I think we would have seen an outburst. Well, there might have been words exchanged. Yeah, but but they keep describing him as this insanely vital man who can never be controlled well and he just leaves i mean yeah but actually one one little small little loophole was they have restraining orders against each other so he probably shouldn't even have been there in the first place well don't you think it's kind of weird that that maps was sleeping over at his mother-in-law's apartment oh absolutely so so i don't think he thought that he was there I see what you're saying, but that would explain why he kind of probably just got up and left. Okay. Maybe to uh, maybe to adhere to the restraining order. I see what you're saying. That makes sense. You know what I'm He's saying? like, let me not get myself in exactly. trouble here. So after Thanksgiving, there's no records of any more strange events. That is until the night of January 21st, 1962. Okay, guys, we're just going to take a second break to tell you about our second sponsor, HelloFresh. We're really excited to talk to you about HelloFresh. It's a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. We've been using HelloFresh since, I want to say, November, and we can't get enough of it. I'm addicted. We get excited. We choose our deliveries. 
to come on Saturday and HelloFresh will deliver any day depending on what is most convenient for you. So we choose Saturdays and we love when we get that knock at the door and our huge HelloFresh package is waiting for us. And it comes delivered so conveniently. All the meals are broken up into separate bags. The meat comes super fresh and everything is perfectly portioned. So nothing ever gets wasted and nothing ever gets thrown out. And most importantly, everything tastes amazing. Like, I mean, the options that they have are phenomenal. Whether you like buttered steak or, you know, that was beef your chili. Favorite. That was my favorite. They have beef chili. Mm-hmm. Oh, they got sweet and, uh, sweet and honey chicken. Like, it just goes on and on and on. Yes. This week, we have Presto Pesto Panko Chicken. We got Meatloaf Balsamico. And you can tell I'm really Italian. <laughs> And I can't wait for the creamy lemon salmon. But I have to say that my favorite and the the meal that I still like have dreams about to this day was the veggie loaded orzo sausage. Yeah, she won't shut up about it. Oh my God, it was so good. So you're not making the same meal again and again, which was a habit that I have to admit as being a busy person, I kind of fell into a habit of where I'd really make the same thing every week. And I thought John was going to just give up on me. Yeah. But with HelloFresh, it allows you to try a lot of interesting meals that I would never even think to attempt. So it makes you feel like a really cool chef at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, what goes overlooked is how uh, step-by-step it is and how it actually teaches you how to cook. Yeah, it gives you a lot of tips on how to cook and how to do things that you probably never thought you were capable of doing. HelloFresh also comes in uh, three meal plans to choose from. Classic, veggie, and family. And it really works for everybody. Whether you are someone who lives alone or you have a family, whether you're a vegetarian or whether you're a meat eater, you are going to love HelloFresh and all of the delicious flavors that it can bring to you and your family. So if you would like to try HelloFresh and you'd love to help us out, that would be amazing. You could get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. All you have to do is visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code TCC30. So it's HelloFresh.com, promo code TCC30. Once again, that's HelloFresh.com, promo code TCC30 for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. On the night of the crime, the Maps family went to visit a neighbor at around 8.30 p.m., bringing with them an apple pie. It was remarked that this night was particularly warm for the end of January in Pennsylvania. This neighbor, who knew Robert Walbach, asked Christine how her father was doing in New York City. She replied that she did not speak to him much anymore, but actually she had just received a letter from him. Maps then added, I hope he doesn't come up and make trouble for us. The night is unremarkable besides those statements the the neighbor later told police. The couple left at about 9.05 p.m. to put the baby to sleep, and the neighbor said they were in the best of spirits. I do think that that's a little late for a four-month-old to be out. Unless it's a weird sleeping schedule, it's kind of cold, I don't know. Well, you also have to admit, uh, also yeah. remember, like, who we're dealing with. Maps was probably like, oh, yeah, kids oh, yeah, don't need fine. sleep. Yeah. You know? 
I know, I know. Okay, so the fire was reported at 10.48 p.m. Neighbors that called in the fire urgently told dispatchers that there was an infant in the house and that they needed to hurry. Firefighters and paramedics responded within minutes. Once the fire was stopped and the firefighters searched the home, the blaze, although producing a lot of smoke, never was able to engulf the house. When first responders entered the house, they realized that Christine, although badly beaten, was still breathing. She was rushed to a nearby hospital. However, in her crib was four-month-old Julia Louise, covered with several blankets. She had died of smoke inhalation. However, Edward Maps was not on the scene. Within three hours of the fire being reported, Christine is going to pass away from her injuries. Edward Maps, because he is missing from the scene, is charged with two counts of murder and arson. The charges were brought against Maps by the county district attorney, James Marsh who is very involved in this case from now on. He decided that, since he only lived a few blocks away from the crime scene, and it was such a nice night, that he would actually take a walk over to the scene and help investigators find clues as to what happened to the 22-year-old's mother and her newborn baby. So he is very, very hands-on here. Which is weird, don't you think? I do, but then at the same time, I don't if he's only a block away. I mean, I guess. I mean, he's curious. Yeah, I mean, right? why not, if you could physically be there, be there? I guess so. In the house, they found that the fire had ten points of origin. Someone had piled up pieces of paper and clothes and set them ablaze without the assistance of an accelerant. Luckily for investigators, all the windows and doors were closed at the time. The fire was started. The lack of oxygen to the fire kept most of the small fires contained, and actually forced several of them to burn out by themselves. One firefighter said that if just one window was kept open, the whole house would have burned to the ground. Upon arrival to the scene, the investigators were able to determine that the doors were locked from outside of the house. Also found in the living room was the wallet and ID of Edward Maps. Wherever he was, he had left all of his personal belongings behind as were the two cars the family owned. Of course, this would not be the 1960s if we didn't have cross-contamination going crazy all over the crime scene. But Marsh, the district attorney, did have the wherewithal to tell the photographer at the scene by phone before he got there to be sure that he took pictures of everything just as it was. And these pictures are actually going to be really helpful later on. But unfortunately, if you are going to have photographs, they can possibly get leaked. And that's just what happened. And that's actually the picture that you saw posted on our Instagram page yesterday. Um, The man who was there at the crime scene took a picture while first responders were giving oxygen to Christine Wolbach, and her unconscious body was photographed lying on the floor, bleeding, and that was on the front page of the newspapers that morning. That's terrible. Could you imagine a family seeing that on a newspaper? So before we get into the hunt for maps, let's talk about the evidence found at the scene and what investigators could figure out so far. The fire was reported at 1048 p.m. 
The fire inspector determined that the fire was burning for 40 minutes prior to the arrival of firefighters and first responders. That leaves about an hour for the attacker to set the scene up. An hour to attack Christine, or Christine and Edward, cover the baby, set the fires, leave, locking all the doors from the outside. So, an hour. I mean, it's doable in an hour. Definitely. It's definitely doable. It's enough time. It's Yeah, it's not outrageous. Like, a lot of people claim that that's too short of a time and it has to be more than one person. But I think an hour is a long time. I mean, you have to think about it. I mean, it's not like he's doing uh, he or she or whoever isn't ta- like it's not he's not doing anything uh, elaborate. Yeah, elaborate. Yeah. Uh, really. Based on further evidence, the following was determined: Christine Maps was struck in the head at least three times with great force with a four-inch square blunt instrument. This murder weapon was never found. Her right hand was badly bruised. Police concluded that these were defensive wounds, obtained as she was protecting herself. They could also have been offensive wounds obtained by striking the assailant with her right hand. There were ten fires lit in the house, made from piles of paper and clothes. Because there was no accelerants used, police questioned the amount of premeditation. The gas stove was also open and turned to 450 degrees. Maybe this explains why the doors and windows were shut. The attacker either believed that they would accelerate the fire or eventually the victims would die of poisoning or the house would just blow Blow up. (laughs) The doors to the house had been locked from the outside with a key, leading police to believe that the person, at the very least, knew the family. There was also evidence that still can't be explained to this day. The first is that near Christine's body in the kitchen was a blood-stained plate, but it was determined that it was animal blood. Animal blood? Yeah. Hmm. There was also a kitchen chair, a block of slate, and a woman's ice skate that was covered with animal fur. And the maps did not own pets, nor had they ever, or had anyone that previously lived at 510 Sour Street. Now that's odd. That's very weird, and it makes everything ten times harder to explain. Every situation that you could possibly think of, how does an animal fit into that? You would have had to bring something in to the residence yeah. um, that had blood or fur. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Had to come from outside. Also, Julia Walbach is going to enter the house three months after the fire to get her personal belongings. She told several people in town that Edward's sculptures were smashed. However, we must keep in mind that this very well could have been done after the fact, as it was not captured on the fo- any of the photographs taken by the photographer that the police officers had sent to the scene. So I think this was something that was done after the fact. But it's very curious and weird. Well, actually, what's weird about it is just how she's concerned about his fucking statues. Yeah, you're like, right. Like, who gives a fuck? I mean, you have your your daughter, you know, and your granddaughter well, I think are, are dead. What she was trying to imply here was the fact that maybe it was someone who was angry with Edward. Right. That... But- yeah, I, that's yeah. the person that came in. Like, but 
I think she was just upset because all of the direction was was placed on all of the investigation was completely on Edward. Edward did it. But I think she's thinking, what if somebody else did this here? Right. You know? With all of these, with all of this bizarre evidence and two people dead, all the focus is going to turn on the hunt for Edward Maps. District Attorney James Marsh claims that after he saw what was done to the baby, he personally aided in the search for Maps. He ordered state troopers to drive him to five different diners, bus stations, train stations, and the residence of all of Maps' known associates within Monroe and Polk County, Pennsylvania. While he had no luck, he went to the home of Floyd Kelly, who was the Justice of the Peace, at 2 a.m., and forced him to issue a warrant to, ara- uh, to arrest Maps. Wow. Yeah, so that's how he ended up getting charged with the two murders and the arson, um, like, only a few hours after the fire. In the meantime, a family friend of the Wallbachs, Walter Dreyer, had found out about the deaths of Christine and Julia Louise. He attempted to notify both of the parents about the tragedy, but could, get, but could not get them on the phone. This is because Robert was traveling from Miami to New York City, and Julia was just simply not answering the phone. At the time, Julia was staying at the Buck Hill Inn, because as soon as the investigators knew about her closeness with Edward Maps, they told her that her apartment would need to be searched, and she could not be on the premises, especially because he might try and seek shelter there. And if he did, the police wanted to be the only ones on the scene. However, her daughter's condition had made a turn for the worst. Dreyer drove her, drove to her to tell her the news and inform her that she needed to go to the hospital to identify the body of her daughter, just as she had did her granddaughter earlier the same night. Although she drove to the hospital with Dreyer, she was unable to identify the bodies and asked him to do so. And he did. So an APB was sent out for Edward Howard Maps, a man wanted for murder. He was 5'6 to 5'8, 39 years old, 60 to 170 pounds, with brown eyes, graying black wavy hair. He usually had a full mustache and beard, but might have shaven. He was last seen wearing a top coat, dungarees, a Cossack-style cap, Sandals. Sandals. Without socks. Oh, man. No socks. It was a warm night. Come on. In the days after the murders and fire, two interesting things are going to happen. First, it was discovered that Robert Wolbach had been right all along. Edward Maps had $30,000 in a trust fund, from which he received a weekly allowance. Now, in 1960, like we said before, buying a brand new house would cost you about $12,000. So, that means Edward Maps could have bought two brand new houses and still had money left over to furnish both of them. But he was still begging the Wallbacks for money. That's insane. Well, he was right. And it's still unknown whether or not Christine was aware of the trust fund. We'll never know. Probably not. Yeah, I would say she probably wasn't aware of it. I mean, I don't think... Or she might have been aware of it, but only to a certain extent. Maybe not how much was in it or how much he was receiving. I would go with that, definitely. Yeah, I think he kind of kept her in the dark a little bit about that. But um, 
God, that must have been like the best vindication for oh, Robert yeah, like, I knew I was right the whole time. Like, Isn't that the best feeling in the world? I told you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the second thing, and probably one of the strangest things that happen in this case, is Maps is going to briefly surface. So we know that he didn't die that night. Because a lot of you are thinking, oh, he probably just died. And they took his body. But... Then this happens. Two days after the fire, a credible witness, a retired executive named Henry Evans, who was introduced to MAPS by Robert Wolbach, received a telephone call while he was having breakfast at 8 a.m. The man's wife answered the phone. She said someone very politely asked to speak to her husband, so she passed the phone over. Evans knew immediately that it was Maps. According to him, Maps said, I am sorry for calling you so early. When you see Bob, I want you to tell him that I forgive him. The executive did not ask Maps what he meant by this, but pleaded with him to turn himself into police. Maps said, I can't do that. In response, Evans told Maps that sooner or later you will have to turn yourself in. Maps then replied, I have too many things to do. He then began talking about something completely off topic. He told the man, I saw your painting at Wyckoff's department store. I liked the frame, but it was hung too high. And then mumbled something that sounded like, I want you to give my love to Julia. Of course, referring to Christine's mother, as they always called the baby Julia Louise. After this, he hung up abruptly and was reportedly heard from one more time. There's a woman who claims that Maps called her, but she was never identified because she reportedly said that Maps told her she's next. And I think to distance herself from the investigation, she never wanted her name released. Right. But a lot of people discredit that phone call. They think the only one true phone call was to uh, Henry Evans. I kind of have to agree. Yeah, I think the sec- uh, there's no- nothing supporting it. Like here with Henry Evans, his wife first answered the phone. She heard the conversation secondhand as well. So I think that Maps called Henry Evans and then was never heard from again. But I just think it's so weird that you would call like some random person. Well, How I- did he even get this phone number Well, you have to remember that he wasn't a very popular person. Right. The people in Strasbourg just didn't really like him. I think, yeah. I don't think they didn't like him because some people did say nice things about him. I think they didn't understand. He wasn't everyone's favorite person. And you're right. They didn't understand his his views. Right. They were a little astray, right? I mean. So investigators' theories can go in two directions with this phone call. Some think that it's proof of his guilt. Why else would he not use the phone call as an opportunity to tell his story? If he was attacked or kidnapped, wouldn't he have been pleading for help or at least explaining that that had happened? Others tend to think that the call points to the guilt of Robert Wallback. Why would he say, tell Bob I forgive him? Did Bob plan this attack or pay someone else to do it and Maps just escaped? That's possible. That is possible. Hey guys, so we're just going to take a third break and tell you about our last sponsor, Casper Mattresses. 
Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get the best rest one night at a time. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foam for a quality sleep surface with the right amount of both sink and bounce. Their breathable design will help you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. That's something we know is really important. (laughs) We tend to have... It gets so hot at night sometimes, and having a mattress that keeps you cool and comfortable really helps us get the best sleep that we could ever possibly have. Absolutely. And with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Casper also has a variety of selections for you, though. Casper offers two other mattresses, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. While the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night, Casper also offers a wide array of other products like pillows, sheets, to ensure an overall better sleep experience. And another added bonus is that everything is designed, developed, and assembled in the United States. Casper is able to have such affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and they sell directly to you. It's hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that sized box. There's free shippings and returns in the United States and Canada. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Casper is offering all true crime couple listeners $50 towards their mattress selection if you visit casper.com slash true crime couple. So if you are interested in having the best sleep of your life, please, please help us out and help yourselves out and visit casper.com slash TCC. Remember guys, casper.com slash TCC. And you can use promo code TCC. For $50 off your mattress. Thanks, guys. So unfortunately, as is the case sometimes, it seems that Marsh never even wanted to entertain the idea that possibly someone else was responsible for what happened that night in the MAPS home. All of the information we know about the hostile situation that existed between Wallback and MAPS really only came out recently, thanks to an incredible investigative journalist from the Pocono Record named, now I'm probably going to say this so wrong, uh, Katerin Zeichel, who did a lot of amazing investigating. In 2008, she wrote a four-part series that can be found online, and in fact, I'll give you the link to it in the show notes. And this information about the strained family situation was never investigated before or released out of respect to the family. It was kind of like a, we don't air other people's dirty laundry or look into it kind of thing. Very old school way of thinking. Right. So like they didn't even want to investigate it because it would embarrass the Wallback family. Like, yeah, and they were like very they want, prominent. Right, and they, they wanted want to keep their business. Tarnished. Yeah, exactly. No, not the family. The police officers didn't even want to look into it. Because they thought that's not our business. That's very old school. Yeah. It's not like that anymore. No, no, no. Well, I mean, everything's on Facebook, so you can pretty much find out what's going on in a family by looking at people's (laughs) feeds. That's why I'm not on Facebook. Me neither. 
the investigators didn't want to embarrass the family by bringing domestic disputes or divorce to the public's attention, as these subjects were very taboo at the time. In fact, Robert Walbach was asked only once about his alibi, three weeks after the night of the fire, and was taken at his word for it. Walbach maintains that he was on an airplane from Miami to New York City, where he got a room at the Chesterfield Hotel. Now, that's the Chesterfield Hotel in New York City, not the one in Miami, because you don't want to confuse the two. Walbach told police that he checked into the Chesterfield Hotel at 3.15 a.m. However, when Dreyer called Walbach at 4 a.m., he was informed by the hotel staff that Walbach had not checked in yet. In fact, Dreyer was not able to get a hold of Walbach at the Chesterfield Hotel until 8.15 a.m. Now remember, a drive from New York City to Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania is at most two hours. Hmm, that's... That doesn't really make sense. No, there's a whole chunk of time that's completely missing. We don't even know when the flight landed. Right, because it's not like how it is now, like when you, you know, your ticket and all that other stuff, and then you get checked in. And everything is filmed. Yeah. Walbach also said that he purchased the ticket to and from Miami on December 6th, and his return flight was at 9.30 p.m. on January 21st, and that's exactly when the attack was taking place, conveniently. He claimed that he flew on Alaska Airlines. However, police were informed that there were no Alaska airline flights from Miami to New York City that night. It was also possible to sell an airline ticket to someone else in 1962, as you didn't need identification to board an airplane. Yeah, that's... It is the worst alibi ever. Worst, and, and the police don't ever question it, nor do they look into any of those discrepancies. That's insane. They don't, they just don't even investigate it. Dropping a bull again. Yep. And that's not just the Pennsylvania State Police or Sheriff's Department. That's the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of balls dropped there. And an interesting (laughs) aside is Robert Walbach also owned a very large farm in Bushkill, in addition to his various properties in Stroudsburg, which was never searched by the police. Yeah, that's a problem. You should probably yeah, search huge that. Huge property. It's now actually owned by the Delaware Water Gap. So it, it is state property now at this point. So despite the shakiness of the father with an axe to grind, investigators were positive that the schizophrenic outsider had committed these atrocities. Because that's, at the end of the day, that's who they're comfortable with saying did it. An outsider with problems that they can't understand. See, I view that differently. Will you tell me, John? I am going to tell you. I view this differently. <laughs> it's easy. See, there's a difference between, it, like, okay, all the evidence points to maps or just what's convenient and easy here. Mm-hmm. What's easy is to say that maps is responsible due to his PTSD, due to his weird outlook on life you know due to the fact that he's a bloodsucker and just takes and takes with people and Mm -hmm. just his overall demeanor right it's easy but it's possible in my opinion it could be the father it could be robert no i know i know 
what I'm saying, I completely agree with everything you just said. Right. But isn't it, it makes them sleep easier at night. Which they always do. Thinking an outsider did it. Right. But that's what they're going to do because it's convenient. Right. Not necessarily what's really in front of us here. Right. So police also put a lot of pressure on Julia Wallback. After they heard she was accused of having an affair with her son-in-law, she was interrogated by the FBI agents several times. She was interrogated several times by FBI agents regarding her relationship with MAPS. It was reported that Wallback was often left with sobbing and denying all of these claims. In an attempt to escape the scrutiny, Wallback visited a friend who lived in San Juan, Puerto Rico for a few weeks. A state trooper wrote a letter to the police in San Juan to be on the lookout for Wallback possibly meeting Matt. In the letter, he wrote, This investigator is quite certain that this Mrs. Wallback and the wanted person Edward Maps are very intimate with each other, and she will go any place to meet up with this person. I think that's a little too much. I mean, I will say this, though, right? Like, even though I just said it would be convenient and easy to, like, blame him, right? There is the flip side, which is, did he kill his infant kid and the wife to be with the mother no because they never got together true true right well we don't know we don't know no, but we do one... know that julia wallback lived to be 98 years old and never dated someone i know i know else. but i'm you know what i'm trying to say though someone one would say oh well maybe they got together at one point and no one knows yeah but i just think they're being a little too hard on her because of one claim that was Passed out by Robert Wallback, who was angry enough to say something. The, these claims were never... The claims of ha- them having an affair were never backed up. No, none. Uh, do I think that she gravitated towards him and listened to everything he said? And I think she maybe, in my opinion, from what I see from all the paperwork, is that she kind of saw him as... I guess the best way to say it is like her spiritualist. Her person, like her... Her guru? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so is it... He was her, like, rescue. Right, so, so, let me, so let me get this straight. So is it... Is it easy for both of us to say that they definitely had an affair with each other? Like, even though it's speculatory? I don't think it was physical. You think it was an emotional connection? Yeah. That maybe he didn't get it from his wife? No, I think more the other way around. I think she didn't get it from her husband. From Robert and uh, sought it out through maps? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll go with that. More than a physical. Yeah. I just don't think. I think she's very old school. She never married again. Okay. Um, Okay, so James Marsh, as the other FBI agents, are going to be hell-bent on finding maps. So... They are going to put in a request to get Edward Howard Maps put on the FBI's most wanted list in 1962. And after this, Maps's crime, or the crime they're assuming he committed, was known around the world. People claim to have seen Maps all over. From play- like some people said they saw him in the Bahamas, some people said they saw him in London. They had sightings of Maps everywhere, but none of them were ever legitimate. And that's the problem with that. Yeah, now you get all these crazy claims coming out. I mean, and if you take a picture, and if you look at a picture of him, he looks like any normal man, you know? like Uh, he looks a little creepy. Really? Think so? Yeah, he's super creepy. All right. Well, I think he just looks 
average for the time period. No, I think he looks like a creepster. Okay. <laughs> okay. So something weird's going to happen now at this point. Um, years are going to pass. Maps is on the FBI's most wanted list, but they're not finding him. And this is going to take us to 1966. Unexplainably, flowers were placed on the graves of Christine and Julia Louise at the Dutch Reform Cemetery in Bushkill on the day before the Maps' wedding anniversary. No one knew who put them there. The following year, James Marsh requested that Maps be removed from the FBI's most wanted list as of December 1st, 1967. No explanation was ever given for this request. Edward Maps was declared legally dead on October 21st, 1971. Again, no explanation was given in the news for these actions. The FBI cannot answer the questions as to why he was removed or why he was declared dead. According to a media spokesperson, the FBI destroyed the fugitive case file on Edward Howard Maps in December of 1977. Any attempt to look at police files on the case are always denied because the Pennsylvania State Police claim that this is an ongoing investigation. So I just, I don't think that they would take someone off the FBI's most wanted list and declare them dead unless something was known. I don't think they're sharing it with the public, but I think someone might know something. Especially because they're not answering questions. Well, you hit it right on the head. I mean, there's really no other place to, like, it's hard for us to have, like, a, like a, you know, to give our true and full, like, opinion on it when there really isn't much there except they have to, like, the FBI needs to know something, and that's why they're guarding it. It's right. a guarded secret. They're destroying evidence. Yeah, it was weird. They're, they're I don't know declaring why the him dead. They're taking him off the FBI, uh, you know, most wanted list. And the and the only thing that I can think of as to why you would take him off the most uh, the FBI list is if there were other criminals that kind of like you know uh, in popularity or no, like in you, whatever. He he was never on the top ten. He oh, was, was just on the list. On the list. That's what I know. Yes. You don't like you don't just take people off off the list because other people are being put on. There's not like a max number of people. On the FBI's most wanted list. There's always going to be a top 10 that could get bumped. Right, but so you'll still stay on the list. Okay. So, so there's not was, like a map. Okay. A I thought he might have been in that top 10. That's no. why I'm saying that. Okay. For a short time, he was on the top 10. But then other things took... Uh, right. Which is why yeah. I'm saying that. Yeah. But he was still on the list. Okay. I understand him being taken off the list after a certain amount of years. Um the old, I understand him being declared dead. That might even be certain legal things. Maybe his family is trying to get um, the money from the trust fund that was left to him. I get all of that. What I don't get is why the FBI destroyed their fugitive files on him in 1977. It's weird. Yeah. They obviously know something that we don't know. Right. You know, is it crazy to think that maybe... There's a government, like a government reason for it. Was he like brought into a spy program? I, I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not saying spy, but I'm just saying, was there something of some sort of connection from somewhere in his military background, and that's why he's kind of going off the radar? I don't think. I don't so. think so. But it's just it's just odd to me. Only because he 
was not um, in any type of special forces in the military. He was an infantryman. So I don't think that it has anything to do with that. But this crime has left a legacy on the town of Stroudsburg. Many still have their theories. And in an interview given in 2008, Betty Metzger contacted the Pocono Record after reading the series written by Zeitschel. She was the cousin of Christine Maps. Betty states that Ed loved her cousin and his baby girl, and that their family never believed that Edward could be responsible for those crimes. On the other hand, many shop owners from Stroudsburg are going to claim to know Maps, and they said that he was a vindictive person and that he could be capable of anything. It really leaves us with two theories and one theory that's always possibly there. Um, the first theory is that Edward did it. The second theory is that Robert Wolbach is responsible. And the third, which is always going to be there because there's that slight, slight possibility that this is just a random intruder. Well, I don't think it's a random intruder. Yeah, I think it's it's a little too... There's too much going on for it to be somebody random. Right. You know what I mean? We can say, oh, the random yeah. intruder had a fucking key to the place to lock it from the outside. Like, you yeah, can, and wanted you to can start discredit the, it. Yeah, but You really can. So the theory surrounding Edward did it could possibly be um, his post-traumatic stress syndrome that mm-hmm. he was going through. Some people make the argument that he was used to living a carefree life, a beatnik life in New York City. And now all of a sudden he has the pressures of paying a mortgage and having a family and that maybe he just wanted to escape. Yeah, but he's the type of guy where he's not going to feel that way about like the over, like being overwhelmed about new family life because he's the type of guy, he's going to have his whole family conform to his lifestyle. Yeah, I agree. And I think that if he really didn't, if he really had a problem with it, I think he would have just walked away. I don't think he would have killed him. No, it would have been easier for him to walk away. Yeah. Plus, I don't, I don't think that he felt overwhelmed at all. This guy's living the life of Riley. I mean, he is not paying for anything, keeping all the money from his inheritance. Um, He has his wife and his mother-in-law wrapped around his finger. By all accounts, he loves his baby girl. Yeah. He seems to really be liked by certain people. I think he has like this group of people that like him in the community. I don't think that he felt overwhelmed at all. There's no, no, no. there's no evidence of him being overwhelmed, but living content in this life where he's kind of being worshipped a little bit by these two women. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't think I, I don't think he did it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where the hell he went, but I don't think he did it. Uh, I mean. Maybe he had a flashback, but I can't see that happening either. No. No. Uh, Christine was attacked. She was attacked. Pretty badly. Really badly. And she fought off this attack. And I just, there doesn't seem, there's no records of Edward ever being aggressive. And violent, yeah. Like, there's not nothing. Even, not even when he drinks, not even, like, ever. And And if Edward did it. There's no way that the animal blood or fur can be explained. Doesn't make sense. The only way the animal blood and the fur can be explained is if an outsider came in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's, that had to be brought in. This might be slightly comical. What? 
what if like an animal i can't even say it out loud <laughs> pretend like i can't even pretend that it's like a real life theory forget it it's so bad it's so bad well now it's too you gotta tell us what, you, what, what if you an animal from the wilderness of Stroudsburg, pennsylvania wandered in the home of 510 sour street edward fighting off this animal is triggered with his post-traumatic stress and then kills his family really <laughs> really I don't know. I'm just trying to explain the animal fur and blood. You explain it. I actually did because when we talked How? about this. All right. So, guys. I must have uh, not been paying attention. No. Well, I, I don't know if I could completely explain it, but if you think about it, what if the person that committed the, the, the you know this crime was like into hunting maybe or, you know, um, I mean, I'm not saying because uh, no knife was used at all, but I'm saying like what if it was like a skinning knife or whatever or they just got done killing an animal in the wilderness or something. I guess it's kind of like I I get what you're saying and it would make sense if a knife was used, but the amount of blood that was found on the plate couldn't just be the drippings from a knife. That's it's just so weird. I know. Well, so let's we'll get back to the Edward maybe did it thing. What if we say Robert Wallback hired somebody and that intruder came in with an animal, like a dog, like an attack dog. Like, what if he felt, I don't, I don't know. That's the only, that's the only reasonable thing that I can think of in my mind that someone entered the house with like a dog. Okay. And what, the dog got injured? Well, the dog was there with the person to try and, you know, murder the family. And in Christine's struggle, while the dog was attacking, but the dog never attacked her because she has no animal wounds. Let's just stick with this. The animal Ro- can't be explained. The animal she- shit can't be explained, but we can say that Unless, Robert- wait, sorry, I'm stopping you. Do you want to continue? No, that's okay. Go ahead. I feel bad. No, no. Okay. Unless, <laughs> Unless Christine, Edward, and Julia Louise were home. A man enters the home with the dog and himself to attack the family. Let's say the dog is attacking Edward and Christine grabs the animal to get him, get it off of Edward. Thus providing the, the blood and the fur of the animal, but no animal attack wounds on Christine. I get that, but it's, I and, don't know. And... Well, because Christine, they know that Julia Louise was was unconscious but still slightly breathing, and so was Christine when the attacker left. What if the attacker also left Edward unconscious, but he woke up before first responders got there and fleed the scene and fe- because of fear, because of PTSD, because he was triggered, because... He just didn't know what to do. He was scared. We still don't know what happened to Edward that night. Was he attacked? Was he the attacker? But it seems like everyone was left unconscious. No one was left dead. I think that like you can write you could actually say that like the fur could it doesn't have to be from a dog, right? But no. we could say that the fur was maybe from a hat or a piece of clothing 
Which makes sense. No, I know, but the blood doesn't. But the blood. I know that. But I'm just saying, like, you could write one off, but not the other. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could say a killer came in with a fur coat. I mean, that's... But there, where's the blood coming from? It's weird. It's very strange. I don't... I, I do think, though, that the motive lies with Robert Wallbeck. Well, I, he, I, he was able to... Like, in reality, he had the money to hire someone. Yeah. He had the property in the farm to dispose of anybody that he wanted to. Yeah, but... Just saying. You know, and yeah. he has motive. He uh, 100% has motive. His whole family was... Like, he lost his entire family. His alibi is a shit. His alibi, alibi sucks balls. Yeah. And I just don't... He, to me, just seems the most... Uh, I don't think he did it physically because no. of his weak heart. Yes, I, I, he definitely didn't do it himself. But I think that he hired someone. He had all the means of doing mm-hmm. so and all the reasons to do it. I thought, what if it, wouldn't it be interesting? The phone call that happened with Edward Maps was Robert Wolbach's friend. What if that was even planned and Edward did die that night? And that whole, oh, pretend you heard a phone Pretend you got a phone call. Could be. But then, like Just I said... Just to cover his tracks. But then we can go back into the whole... Uh, we can go full circle here and say that, well, then who the fuck put the flowers down if no one's owning up to it? Well, uh, it could have been the father because he feels guilty. Right. But wasn't he asked and he said he didn't do it, right? Did that happen? Then no one said that they did it. No one said that they did it. And I think it would also be weird that he would give flowers on the anniversary of the wedding because he didn't want Julia to marry Edward Maps. But then again, that could be any family member that knows when they got married. Or that could be anybody in the town that was even remotely close to the family. Or Edward Maps resurfaced in 1966. And one of the things he did was put flowers on the grave. Then he was spotted by someone who knows Wallback and he was murdered in 1966, which is why he was removed from the list in 67 and pronounced dead in 71 maybe maybe he was found and that's why it's still an ongoing investigation to find out who killed him when they found him yeah but then again but there's no evidence of his body or anything so then they can't just lie that's true and there's no reason to to hide that it's weird because every time you think you have something figured out in this case it like as it starts it starts to turn and you can't figure out everything there's just certain things that just don't make sense here. Maybe we're maybe we're being a little blind to it. Maybe I don't know. I don't think the animal. If someone can explain the animal to me, you're a god. I don't know. I can't I don't do think. It. But but honestly, Kay, I don't think that the person that if there was a person that killed them in there, that they had a dog. I know you mean well, but I don't think it is. That's I don't think that they had a dog. You're dumb. You're. I didn't say you're dumb. <laughs> I'm just saying I don't think it's a dog, but it I does. Just... It doesn't make sense. I would be curious to know what, I mean, again, people have requested this information through the Freedom of Information Act, but because it's an ongoing investigation, we can't get it. But knowing what kind of animal this is would be a great help. Yeah, to, well, to determine if it was like a dog or if it was like a, a bear. A, bear. a well, tiger. Well, I don't know if there's a tiger. There's I'm no just tiger. kidding, but like, <laughs> I mean, we could freaking go on forever with that. Yeah, but I mean, let, let's let's just get down to this. So, do you think that Robert did it, or Edward did it, or someone else? I think that Robert was involved. 
I don't think he did it physically himself. I think he might have persuaded someone to do it. And somehow Edward survived the attack, got away. Do I think he lived? No, I don't think he lived past. I think he didn't make that phone call, but I don't think he lived far past that phone call. I think he was found in guilt. That's what I think. I think that Tom, uh, Robert did do it. Physically, no, but like you said, definitely hired someone to do so. Um, I don't know about the fur or the blood or any of that, but I think that he had someone hired to kill him and everyone there. And everything else is just, he. you know, he said this, she said that. We don't really know. So, But I will say that I think maybe Robert had a part in this. I, I do. Like I said, he had the money to hire someone, and he had the means of disposing a body on farm property. He Yeah, I'm surprised that property has never been searched, even to this day. I know the case was reopened in 1993, but um, the findings of that case were that they believed that Edward Maps was the one who was involved. So, I don't know. I just think that after all these years, someone got away with it. You got to remember at this point, if you're on an FBI list and you're pronounced dead, that means you have no license, no social security number, you have no way of doing anything. And as we all know, guys, even if he lived for another 20, 30 years, let's just say, you know, uh, you know, in the 70s and in the 80s, things were required. You needed to have. Uh, a license, like you know what I'm saying, like you needed certain thing, uh, identification cards to get by in life. Correct. You, there's no way in today's day and age you can just pretend to be dead and and everything be fine. It's just not oh, possible. Yeah, no. People I agree. have credit cards, debit cards, bank account. It's just impossible. So I don't know if this guy is alive. Where the hell did he go to live out the rest of his days? I don't know. I don't think he did. I, I, I don't think he did either. So I don't think he did this. I think someone killed him and and his family. There's no way this guy killed his wife, who he loved dearly from all accounts. Right. I just don't see it. I don't see. He did not kill these people, do all these things, and then just walk the earth. No, and I, no one ever I found completely him. Agree. There's no body and there's no evidence of it. So I, in my eyes, they're wrong. This guy did not do this. You are very Edward Maps passionate right now. I just think it's too easy for people to just say it was this fucking guy, and it's not. Yeah, I mean, there. it's very easy to say the schizophrenic guy who is an outsider in the community committed this crime because nobody we know could ever do something so atrocious right. as to kill a four-month-old baby right. and, and a 22-year-old also, woman. He's no angel. I'm not saying oh, that, like no. he's innocent. Like I'm not saying he's innocent. Like he's not pure of heart, yeah. fucking neighborly, or anything like that. But I don't think that he killed these people. And I think that I it's mean, just the, easy the to just residence thing alone was the biggest dick move I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, but I, I just I I know. think that Edward Maps was a manipulator. I think that he really did truly destroy the Wallback family. Yes, he's guilty of that. But I think that Robert wanted to make not just him pay for it, but I think he also wanted to make his wife and his daughter pay for it. Yeah. And I think he he wanted he knew that it would hurt Julia more to have to live with the fact that 
her daughter and granddaughter died yeah. because of the decisions. Made. I can see him getting to that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate, but I, I mean, that's what we've come to through looking through all of this stuff. But if you guys have a different theory, that would be amazing if you can tell us because there are some things we're truly at a loss for here. Yeah. You can't, we can't disprove or, you know, prove anything, really. No, no. We just want to thank our sponsors again for helping us out with this episode. That's Zola Wedding Registries, HelloFresh, and Casper Mattresses. Please don't forget to use those promo codes and get all of those amazing benefits that they're offering you guys. And we now want to take the time to thank all of our new Patreons that we're so excited to uh, read the list of. So we want to thank Pat McDonald, Valerie Castro, Nicole Berg, Cara DeVar. Oh my God, if I say these wrong, please don't hate me. Um, Beck Weisenecker, Allison Ernst, Linda Martinelli, Angie Rush, Lindsay C., Kelly Vanderveer, Dana Connaughton, Shondell Young, Justin Tinkman, Kathy Rodnight, Stephen Meyerson, Lynn Pfeiffer, Helen Foster, Mary Anderson, Laura L., Sarah Franco, Jordan, <laughs> Sarah Sumler, Jen Paradiso, Mike Sellis, Stacy, Linda Pincher, Angela Stiles, Catherine Pinch. I hope I said that right, Catherine. I'm sorry. <laughs> Stephanie, uh, Tiffany Stallings. Jessica Brand, Kim Nixon, Melanie Link, and Christine Solar. Thank you so much, guys. That is absolutely amazing. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And just remember, if anything happens to me in the next two weeks, it's usually the husband. And same thing goes for me. It's definitely my wife. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye, guys.